We are making our way slowly through John's prologue. I promise you we will speed up at some point, but uh, the prologue is just so rich that we have to take our time. John chapter 1. I am no Catholic, but I am fascinated by Gothic architecture. I've told you this before. A number of architectural innovations converged in the 13th century to produce these massive Gothic cathedrals. Ultimately, lighter building materials, the Gothic arch, ribbed vaulting, and flying buttresses converged into one defining characteristic of the Gothic, light. Otto Van Simpson says the Gothic wall, the wall of the church, seems to be porous. Light filters through it, permeating it, merging with it, transfiguring it. The Gothic may be described as transparent, diaphanous architecture. No segment of inner space was allowed to remain in darkness, undefined by light. Another author writes, the achievement of light in the Gothic windows so nearly approaches completion that the solid elements of the tracery float, as it were, on the luminous window surface. Its pattern dramatically articulated by light. In other words, the whole wall just seemed to be floating in the light. Abbot Suget, who built the first Gothic cathedral, the Saint-Denis Cathedral in France, situated a great rosette window in the north end of that cathedral. And at the center of that window is God, the creator of all light, and radiating out in every direction is all of creation. God's light just pours through the whole universe. Gothic architects sought to communicate to the mediums of stone and glass their conviction that Christ was the light of the world sent to penetrate the darkness of the world below. One author notes, the glow of the stained glass of cathedrals like Chart, Borge, York, and Strasbourg suggests a light from another world shining into the darkness. And light's ability to completely eradicate the darkness does indeed reflect Christ's power to just completely eradicate the darkness of planet Earth. And when I read John's Gospel, I think of this Gospel as a cathedral of light, a masterful composition designed to bring light into a world full of darkness. And certainly the power of light is reflected in John's imagery here in his prologue. John uses, again, three terms to describe Jesus, with particular emphasis on the third. Jesus is, first of all, the logos, the word. And in the logos, he says, is life. And that life, he says, thirdly, is the light of men. Now, when that life shines, the darkness is powerless to resist. Let's read again the first five verses of John 1. In the beginning 
was the Logos. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Logos, life, and light. Three terms to describe the mystery of God. But again, it's this third theme, light, that John will utilize as his prologue continues. In verses 6 through 13, John identifies a person who came to bear witness about the light. And then John describes people's reaction to that light. And their reaction helps us interpret the phrase in verse 5, the darkness has not overcome it. Now John does not claim by that phrase that all people embrace the light. Rather, the light is so clear that only by willful rejection can people remain in darkness. And we'll spend some more time with that next week. But let's continue now with the prologue by reading verses 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, did you grasp those two paragraphs? In verses 6 through 18, we have a paragraph, and they describe the witness to the light. In verses 9 through 13, we have a second paragraph, and they describe men's response to the light. Originally, I wanted to work through all those verses, but I think we're going to have to concentrate our attention just on the first paragraph this morning. In verse 6, we learn of a witness to the light whose name was John. Now, this is not John, the author of this gospel. This is John the Baptist. And that becomes clear as you read on through the rest of the chapter. This is the same John who baptized Jesus and saw the Spirit descend on Jesus. Verse 32 mentions that event. So, friends, what do we know about John the Baptist? And the answer from John's prologue is actually very little. 
But you notice how John just abruptly appears in the scene the way Elijah abruptly appeared in the scene back in 1 Kings 17 when he confronted Ahab. Well, who is this guy? We're not told. He's just there all of a sudden. Nevertheless, John makes an extremely curious and important statement about John. That's John the Gospel writer. makes a very important statement about John the Baptist. And it's found there in verse 8. Here it is. He was not the light. Is it possible there was some confusion? Why would John say John the Baptist was not the light unless people mistook him for the light? Ever just reflected on that statement? Like, why is John saying this to us? I think we need to spend a little time this morning discovering John the Baptist. Our church's passion, which is printed on the back of the bulletin, is to bring people to Christ and Christ-likeness. Well, don't you suppose it would be to our advantage to know something about the first great witness in the Gospels who turned people to the light, to Jesus? Who is this person? What can we learn about this person who was not the light, but apparently was confused with the light? To answer that question, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 3. While you're turning, let me just comment on Luke's gospel. Luke describes several extraordinary circumstances surrounding John the Baptist's birth. His mother Elizabeth, who had been barren, was suddenly able to conceive with her husband Zechariah, a priest. While serving the temple, Zechariah was visited by the angel Gabriel, who announced the birth of John. And this child, said the angel, quote, will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Also, this child will have, quote, the spirit and the power of Elijah. Elijah in Jewish culture was highly venerated as a man of enormous influence and stature. And Luke tells us John will just turn hearts toward God by preparing for the coming of the Lord. And Zechariah was then left speechless until the birth of baby John. Luke's Gospel also tells us the pregnant Mary went to visit Elizabeth while both women carried their children. And John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb leapt in the presence of Jesus in Mary's womb. Clearly, there is something extraordinary about this man from the very beginning. We come now to Matthew 3, and some 30 years have elapsed. How often John saw his relative, Jesus, we don't know. It's quite possible they knew each other quite well. Matthew's Gospel gives us then several additional pieces of information about John the Baptist. 
But would you observe that Matthew, or what Matthew rather, puts right on the front end of his introduction? What does he lead with? What is the first thing Matthew, and indeed the New Testament canon, wants us to know about John the Baptist? Look at Matthew 3 and verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So friends, what is it that's right up there in the front end? It's not the messenger, it's what? The message. The message. Before Matthew tells you anything about John, he tells you what John preached. The phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is actually a summary of the entire content of John's preaching. Now Matthew quotes Isaiah also concerning John. And notice what Isaiah puts on the front end. The voice. The voice. The message is more important than the messenger. When Scripture emphasizes the voice of John, then we should really pay attention to what John actually says. If you want to be a voice bringing people to Christ and Christ-likeness, and I suggest to you that John is a great voice to imitate. And Matthew goes on to emphasize just how completely John the Baptist actually spoke for Jesus Christ. And let me just show you this briefly. In verse 2, again, we have a summary of John's preaching content. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, glance ahead to Matthew 4 and verse 17, and here Matthew summarizes Jesus' public ministry of preaching. Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Identical message. In other words, John has no independent agenda His preaching ministry was not designed to emphasize anything more or anything less than Jesus and his message to come. Just point people to Jesus. That's his ministry. And let me give you several more points of identity. Back in Matthew 3 and verse 7, John uses the metaphor of vipers to describe Jewish leaders. There were many among the Pharisees and Sadducees who were false teachers despite having been immersed in the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, curiously, in Matthew 12 and verse 34, after the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub, guess what? Jesus uses the identical metaphor, vipers. In Matthew 3 and verse 8, John speaks of the necessity of producing good fruit. And Jesus will use the identical message, the identical image rather, in Matthew 7 in his concluding appeal to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 3 and verse 9, 
John rejects the Jews' false pride in Abraham as their father. John claims that God can actually raise up true children to Abraham from stones, that is, from non-Jewish sources. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 8. Abraham's children by birth will be thrown out of the kingdom, but others from the east and from the west will be gathered into the kingdom to sit down with Abraham. In Matthew 3 and verse 10, John refers to the complete destruction of the tree that does not produce good fruit. Well, guess what? Jesus uses the same metaphor almost verbatim in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12, John refers to true wheat being separated from the chaff. Well, in Matthew 13 and verse 30, Jesus uses the same image of separating the tares from the wheat in the kingdom. Are you getting the point? Everything John preaches just points straight to Christ. He is a voice in the wilderness just crying out the way to Jesus. Everything he preaches is designed to point people to Jesus' own preaching ministry. And that's why the remainder of verse 3 reads this way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. The imagery, imagery here refers to making a road smooth. When important royalty traveled, laborers were literally sent ahead to fix all the potholes in the road, to smooth out the ride. John's voice was preparing people to greet royalty. Make a path straight to Jesus or a path from Jesus straight to people. The goal of John's preaching is simply to remove the obstacles the obstacles that just prevent people from coming to Jesus and let people come straight to Jesus and let Jesus come straight to people. That really is what gospel witness is all about. Just eliminate the obstacles and let people come to Christ. That's John's ministry. Now, John's, I think, most distinguishing characteristic then is selflessness. John's biographical details, his background, his qualifications are largely irrelevant. They more or less just fade into the background. John has no personal career ambitions in ministry. He has no desire to move up the ecclesiastical CEO ladder. John has no desire to build around himself an independent following. He doesn't want to build an empire around himself. John wouldn't put his name on a building or erect a monument to himself. John would actually cringe, I think, if you claim to be a follower of John the Baptist. In the third chapter of John, we will learn that John the Baptist's disciples begin leaving him behind, and they begin following Christ. And those massive crowds that he had began to dwindle. And John's disciples report to John that his followers are defecting and they're going off and following Jesus and guess how John responds 
with joy. He must increase, but I must decrease. He responds with complete joy. Now, friends, what if we had a whole church like that? A whole church of believers that just pointed people to Christ with great joy. John's reaction should really be the goal of every one of us, whether we preach or teach or give public testimony or sing or read the Scripture. Anytime we witness for Christ, give a testimony, just, just let people look right past you and see Jesus. That's the goal. Don't let your voice draw people to yourself. Just turn people's attention right past you to Jesus. Now, in verse 4, notice how John's selfless attitude extended all the way down to his lifestyle, including his clothing and his diet. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. In other words, John does not deck himself out in royal attire. He doesn't enjoy sumptuous meals in the king's palaces. John is indeed the greatest ambassador for the greatest king in all of human history. But you would never know that by looking at him. Humans love titles. They love pageantry. You can go to Buckingham Palace today and watch the changing of the guard. Plenty of pomp and circumstance for a defunct monarchy and a narcissistic family. Have you noticed the higher people move up in the ranks of the employ of world leaders, the greater their sense of self and self-importance tends to become? Designer suits appear in their closets. Expensive grooming bills. $100 haircuts. Escalating dining budgets. I'm important now. Well, not John the Baptist. John arranges his whole lifestyle so that when people see him, they would see nothing more and hear nothing more than a voice for Christ. And now, friends, let's turn ahead to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. And let's get a sense of just how effective John was in pointing people to Jesus Christ. In Matthew 16, Jesus is finalizing his Galilean ministry. And suddenly he takes his disciples far to the north to Caesarea Philippi. And there he reveals to his disciples his plan to journey to Jerusalem where he will be crucified and resurrected. However, before giving that stunning new revelation, Jesus puts a question to his disciples, a question that really summarizes Jesus' Galilean ministry. What has Jesus been talking about from Matthew 4 all the way through chapter 15? Here's the question. Who am I? Who am I? Jesus says to his disciples. Look at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, what is the disciples' initial response to that question? Verse 14, and they said, some say, John the Baptist. 
Well, John the Baptist had been martyred about a year earlier. And very quickly, a rumor just spread all the way through Galilee that Jesus was actually John the Baptist resurrected. Now, isn't that really amazing? Apparently, if you heard John preach and you later heard Jesus preach, it was very easy to identify them. In fact, to confuse them. Maybe they are, in fact, the same person. They were, after all, related to each other and probably had some family resemblance. They were actually the same age, give or take a few months. But it's very curious that the first person they associate with Jesus is John the Baptist. Now, verse 14 tells of other prophets who were confused with Jesus. Elijah and Jeremiah, for instance. But recall, these men had been dead for centuries. None of Jesus' contemporaries ever heard Elijah or Jeremiah speak. But they had heard John And John's and Jesus' preaching was so similar that a rumor quickly spread through Galilee that Jesus was John. In fact, Herod said, yes, Jesus is John resurrected. That's in Mark chapter 6. Well, friends, talk about selflessness. John was just a voice. Just a voice attempting to speak. Nothing more and nothing less than the truths that point people straight to Jesus. He has no independent agenda. He sounds like Jesus. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. He must increase and I must decrease. That's John. And with all that in mind, let's return to John chapter 1. Like Matthew, it's very curious that John does not begin with John the Baptist's personal appearance, with his lifestyle, or with his biography. Where does he begin? Well, John goes right to the focal point of John the Baptist's ministry. Verse 7, he came as a witness. A witness is a voice for the truth. John's whole mission, his whole agenda, his life's calling in verse 7 was this, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. That John the Baptist was indeed successful in that mission is indicated by the fact that people actually confused John the Baptist with Jesus. Another indication is found right here in verse 8. When again, John says he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Essentially, John the author is saying, don't anyone confuse John the Baptist with the light. People actually did that. But you are mistaken if you think that John is the light. John was not the light, friends. Rather, he gave witness to the light. John apparently had to make this clarification because, indeed, people did confuse the two. Now, let me clarify. Neither Matthew nor John suggest that John the Baptist was somehow sinless. It's not what I'm saying. The best preachers are depraved human beings saved by grace alone. But they are suggesting this. 
the more that a minister is spirit-filled, as John was from birth, the more selfless he is, the more he sounds like Jesus. And the more effective he is at just making those pathways of Jesus just straight and smooth, just come to Jesus, let people come straight to Jesus without being diverted by your personal ministry agenda or by your failures that just stick out like stumbling blocks. Don't stand in the way of Jesus and cast a shadow across the path of the one coming to Jesus. Friends, if Jesus is the Son, don't eclipse His rays from shining into those dark places. Let your ministry be that of a medieval builder who enlarges the glass and shrinks the traceries to maximize the amount of light that just pours into the world. That's our ministry. Spiritually speaking, our whole church family should really labor to become a cathedral of praise where the light just pours in and the shadows disappear and people see Christ. Now what I want to do is take a little bit of time and really apply this. Really apply this. As I said, I wanted to go on and finish the next paragraph, but I really think we need to just pause and really apply this this morning. The image of light is really critical, I think, to helping us evaluate our own ministry, and to evaluate contemporary Christianity, and to evaluate worship models or preaching models. Are we pointing people to the light, or are we throwing the shadows of personal ambition right across their paths? Let's talk about music. I know this is an area of real disagreement among Christians. I understand all that. And I think you all know me well enough to know that I am not some sort of iconoclast stuck back in the 1950s when it comes to music. I'm just not. I don't believe that yesterday's Christians were somehow more spiritual than today's Christians. I don't believe that all good songs were written over 50 years ago. It may surprise you, but I'm actually not opposed to any instrument that I know of when used appropriately and reverently to point people to Christ. I I can't make a biblical case that I know of. You do have tambourines and dancing in the Bible. We've talked about that in different contexts. But I will say this, there are also cultural expressions of music, and we want to be very careful that we don't impose our standards on the global church. Right? I'm not intending to get into any of that today. Right? Here's the question, though, that really, really concerns me when I look at broader ecclesiastical culture. Is your attention drawn to the performer? Or is it drawn to Christ? That's the issue. Is it drawn to the performer, or is it reflected on Christ? It seems to me that much of modern Christian music does emphasize the performer. Get the building light just right to spotlight the lead singer. Get the camera angles correct so we can flash the performer's face up there on the big screen. Dress the drummer in a hip style with his ball cap just cocked off to one side. Looks kind of cool. Jump around the stage, turn on the fog machines, time the motions of your hands, and turn the spotlight on the lead singer at the climactic moment in the song, right? It's performance. 
I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but it just it doesn't it doesn't feel right to me when I read John the Baptist. I, I'm not sure what John the Baptist would do at a comfort at, at, at a concert when you took the microphone and just pressed it into his hand. Right? I don't I don't know what he would do with that. I could be wrong, but it does seem the shadows of our personalities and our performance might eclipse the light if we're not careful. Friends, are those sultry, glamorous poses of the performers on their albums really designed to point you to Christ? Or do they entice you to buy the album? About a year ago, I googled, quote, top Christian artist, and I just started clicking through the websites. And here's what I found. I'm going to conceal the names to be kind. And I looked this last week, and those websites have actually changed since I looked at them about a year ago. Not that they've improved. (laughs) On the homepage of a top Christian artist, here's what I read. With a voice that is both smoky and sweet, the artist has forged a unique sound that is reminiscent of a soulful, heart and throat vulnerability of Adele, mixed with the raw power of Amy Winehouse. Her ability to connect with her audience has captured critical acclaim and recognition as the fastest-selling new artist for her genre of the last decade. And I actually found nothing on that artist's webpage that mentions the name Jesus Christ, or even God for that matter. I do find that she imitates Amy Winehouse, who was a drug addict and an alcoholic. Winehouse had a history of violence, including several arrests, and she died of alcohol consumption at the age of 27. And this is the person that a lead singer, a lead Christian artist identifies with. And I, I can't find Jesus on the website. On the website, I found a link to the performer's Instagram photos. Lots of smiling airbrush photos of the performer, the artist. So here's one of her on stage, just waving to her adoring fans, and it has 32,000 likes. If I click on the comments, here's what I read. I so wish, all capitals, you were coming to Cali. Hope the show was amazing. Another reads, was loving your bracelets with the tassels. Would love to give you my homemade one from Hawaii. Here is another photo of the artist washing her car with a playful, suggestive look, at least in my estimation. It has 72,000 likes. One comment reads, getting the car ready for a little secret something. Another reads, I need a wife who does that. Well, does something feel wrong about that? I I can't find Jesus Christ on the website. If John the Baptist had a website, I mean, what do you think you would find on the website about Jesus? You think you'd find photos of, of himself with 72,000 likes and just have a playful, suggestive comment? And I need a wife that does that? I hope you understand that I'm not some sort of curmudgeonly, cantankerous, old fundamentalist who just gripes about everything modern and wants to turn the clock back a century. You understand that about me. But friends, can we just really point people to Jesus? I mean, can we do that? Can we just point people to Jesus? I click on another website featuring a male group. 
a group that I met back in 2004 when I was in the Christian publishing industry. They were at a, a booksellers convention in Denver, and they were not particularly friendly to me. I won't go into that, but anyway. <laughs> Looking through the lyrics of their songs, I, I actually find them considerably more theological than the previous artists. There was, there was some good, good theology in their songs. It was actually clear that they were singing about God and Jesus and not their girlfriend. I mean, that much was clear. I also find a link on the website to helping children in poverty during COVID-19. They're wonderful. I hope they get some help to them. I find links to videos, photos, a history of the band, and ways to get involved. I also find pictures of the performers, and those pictures have now been updated. In my estimation, at least, they have this, again, this sort of, for lack of a better term, kind of sultry, sexual look to them. None of them are smiling. One has a mohawk, another has dreadlocks, and one is wearing black eyeliner, a male. And again, although some of their lyrics are decent, I I can't locate on their website any reference to Jesus Christ. So if I listen to their songs and I want to find out more about Jesus and I go to their website, I can't find anything about Jesus Christ or how to be born again. That really troubles me. I'm really curious if John the Baptist would just join a band like that, if he'd be okay. If, you know, we sing these lyrics, but we don't really point people to Jesus. Would he appreciate going into the concert hall and just having a spotlight trained on him, right? And he's got some cheering fans out there, and they're wearing T-shirts with his face on it, not smiling, he's got a mohawk or whatever, it's John the Baptist. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like I can picture John the Baptist doing this. All right. Stephen Nichols in his book, Jesus Made in America. Great text. Jesus Made in America has a chapter titled Jesus on Vinyl. And he offers a number of quotations. And these are quotations that actually come from a number of evangelical contemporary commentators. Hank Hill sagaciously quipped, in relation to Christian rock, you aren't making Christianity better, you're making rock and roll worse. Bud Boltman of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship writes, InterVarsity, I refuse to listen to any more Jesus is my girlfriend songs. You know the kind. You can substitute Mandy or Barbara Ann for Jesus, and the rest of the lyrics still make perfect sense. Nichols himself cites lyrics from a popular group, quote, your fragrance is intoxicating in our secret place. He says they speak of the intimate friendship with Christ. But he adds, in non-Christian songs, these lyrics would be taken directly as a double entendre. This sense of double entendre is frequent. Timothy Larson, a church historian, writes of hearing the following lyrics in churches. When I look in your eyes, I go weak in the knees. Your scent drives me crazy. Take me to depths I've never been. Well, I'm really struggling to hear John the Baptist using those kinds of lyrics. I think John the Baptist would preach in the way that he thought Jesus Christ would preach. My friends, I am certainly grateful if people have come to Christ through contemporary Christian concerts, that happens. It does happen, and I'm grateful when that happens. 
And the fact is that every one of us who comes to Christ always comes to Christ in spite of the preacher and not because of him. You realize that? In spite of the performer and not because of her. It's always in spite of us, never because of us. But friends, if we're just really going to model the New Testament example of bringing people to Christ and Christ-likeness, don't you think that John the Baptist would be a really good person to model? He really, through the years, has been a great model for me. What if John the Baptist really just became the model for every Christian out there? Think of that. Every Christian all across America, every preacher, every singer, every performer, whatever it is, if John the Baptist was the model, just deflect people's attention away from yourself and get it laser-focused on Jesus. That's the model. And I don't want to single out merely the modern Christian music industry. There are far too many pastors whose ambition is to build an empire around themselves. It really does happen. Throughout the 20th century, many evangelical and fundamentalist pastors saw the local church as kind of a platform for broader and broader and broader ministry. The advent of radio, television, and finally the Internet, coupled with the revolution and travel in the 20th century, just gave many men a lust for national and even international recognition. J. Frank Norris, the famous Texas fundamentalist, began pastoring First Baptist Church in Fort Worth in 1909. That's in Texas. He pastored that church until his death in 1952, but in 1935, he also accepted the pastor of the Temple Baptist Church in Detroit. Detroit! Yes, simultaneously, he pastored churches in Texas and Michigan, a total of 26,000 people flying back and forth between them. And I just want to say, seriously, are you that important that you just cannot find somebody locally to carry on the work? The 20th century was an age of empire-building pastor CEOs with large staff who just ran churches like big business. A successful pastor served on five boards. He traveled the country. He started several new ministries. He was an in-demand conference speaker. And that humble indigenous shepherd model disappeared in many churches. And at the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century, we have seen an alarming and a shocking rise, and a truly shocking rise in pastoral infidelity, embezzlement, aggressive, angry behavior, and scandal. When that happens, you are not making paths straight to Jesus. You are just tearing up the road, and you are sending people off in different directions. I recently listened to Christianity Today's multi-episodic podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's worth listening to. Pastor Fant and I talked about it just this morning. Pastor Mark Driscoll was phenomenally successful in building a church of some 15,000 members. The man was very gifted. The man accomplished quite a bit. But that whole church collapsed almost overnight. Increasingly, the church became his personal empire. And when the elders finally dismissed him for sinful behavior, that whole church just, it just crumbled around him. And that story, friends, has been repeated many, many times with megachurch pastors. And I'm not envious of the megachurch pastor, don't get me wrong. I, I'm, if if 10,000 people show up to hear you preach, I rejoice. I really do. But your shoulders are not strong enough to carry the church. Let Jesus build his church. If the church is built around a man, around his personality, around a celebrity, that church will crumble. 
Now, of course, any pastor, regardless of the size church that he pastors, can stumble into sin. But it is rather shocking, I think, how many pastors or church leaders who have achieved national fame, whose star suddenly rose in the horizon, came swiftly crashing back down to earth. One episode of that uh, series identifies numerous examples, shocking examples. Tens of thousands of people are just demoralized because their pastor suddenly comes out and he was into all kinds of things. I was speaking recently with a man who's done extensive gospel work in another country. He really is just quite successful. He's established medical works. He's been involved in planning 15 different churches. He's worked in publication. He's worked in evangelism. And he has extensive plans to see the gospel growing in many different countries. And this is what he said to me. I don't want my name on anything. Don't put my name on anything. It's all about Jesus. That's the attitude. When John Calvin lay on his deathbed, he asked the other Genevan pastors to come in for a final visit. And he insisted, do not ever call yourselves by the name Calvin. And he was buried, per his request, in an unmarked grave. That really, friends, is the true spirit of a true witness to Jesus Christ. In Matthew's introduction, friends, what is it out there on the front end? It's not the messenger. It's the message. And in John's introduction, what is it that's out there in front? It's not the person. It's the witness. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Shall we pray? My Father, I pray that people would look past us and see the Lord and Savior of their souls, Jesus Christ. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.